Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 210 for March 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about planning for fieldwork and field schools in the supposedly post-COVID era of 2021. So grab your mask, shovel, and hand sanitizer, otherwise known as your new dig kit, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Good afternoon. Heather, also in California. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. And Stephen in Calgary. And I am joining you from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the home of simultaneously COVID and not COVID because it's raging here, but nobody knows it or believes it. So good job, Florida. But that's where we're at. Uh, we're leaving in a week, but we're staying on the East Coast for a little while. So I, I think the East Coast is kind of all in the same boat. <laughs> but speaking of COVID, which is the topic everybody's <laughs> basically talking about, Bill had a good idea for a topic for this week's episode. And it's basically trying to make 2021 plans for field work in this, what's arguably still a COVID era, but what people are trying to be... I guess, optimistic in calling 2021 a post-COVID era because we put so much on 2020 and saying 2020 is just a bad year. We need to get over with it. So the minute we ticked over January 1st, bam, COVID was gone in people's <laughs> minds. And we're just like, great, 2020 is over. We can put that behind us. Let's move on. But as we all know, that is simply not the case. So let's kick this over to Bill since it was his idea because Bill... You're not doing CRM field work anymore, but you're doing uh, field schools and working with students. So how can you possibly plan for 2021 when you have no idea what's going to go on? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the question that everybody's asking right now. And that's one of the reasons why it's on my mind, because right now in the spring and you know January to April or so is when a lot of the government jobs start to get posted. A lot of companies start to realize, you know, what's their pathway forward? When is the snow going to melt? You know, how many people are we going to hire? How many projects do we have set up? And so kind of right now has always been a critical time in uh, archaeology. And, you know, around this time we have in the past had our, you know, resume uh, episodes or, you know, trying to help people look for jobs and stuff. And so that's why I was thinking about talking about COVID today because it does seem like, you know, we're supposed to be moving into the next zone. And, uh, you know, the scientific research is kind of all over the place where there's a group of folks that are saying, mm -hmm. you know, well, we're all getting the vaccine and, and uh, 
the amount of uh, cases is going down and everything seems to be getting better and on all sides, it seems like it's doing, we're doing well. And as we go into the summertime and, you know, all of us have had a year to be with it, we'll be outdoors more and maybe we won't have huge music festivals, but like you might be able to go see grandma and you might be able to, you know, work without your mask by the end of the summer. And then when the winter comes, it's going to be all of us going back indoors. And those of us who didn't get a vaccine or chose not to might get sick or the variants might come back or everything. But no one's predicting that it's going to be as bad as this last winter. However, mm-hmm. no one has come out and said live, yeah, we're not going to shut everything down again if cases start rising. I mean, are we all still going to be watching the, <laughs> the COVIDometer and checking to see if our state is going into red or orange mm-hmm. or whatever, you know? And so it reminds me of kind of the early days when we're talking about that as when they had the TSA travel thing, right? Like right after 9-11, when you would look on there and it would say, you know, travel is red or the odds of a, a forest fire, that thermometer you see when you go into the forest and it's, you know, the fire danger is red, the fire danger is yellow, you know? So are we going to live our <laughs> lives looking for the COVID thermometer or whatever. I mean, there's just a lot of questions. And when it comes to universities, universities have responded in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of stuff that's happening at universities that is going to impact CRM for years now, because it's not Mm -hmm. just the virus. It's also the financial impact that's going to happen after this, that none of us really actually, in fact, knows what that's going to be. But uh, one thing I know is we've got a cohort of students that came in 2019 and 2020 that didn't get a field school. It doesn't look like most field schools are coming up in 2021. So it's kind of like, how, how are these students, they've spent half of their college with no field school. How are they going to get hired by companies who mm-hmm. all seem to look for folks who have, you know, field work? Is there going to be any kind of uh, you know, acknowledgement of that. Are universities going to somehow come up with field schools? Because right now I'm looking at the outdoor teaching, you know, protocols for the University of California, and it doesn't seem like I could do that in a place like St. Croix. So, you know, there's just a lot of stuff to to figure out. And uh, this is going to impact archaeology into the future, regardless of whether the cases go down or not. That brings up two questions for me, Bill, regarding your field schools. You mentioned University of California policies and also St. Croix. So are universities creating their own policies to be used worldwide or are they taking into account local policies, procedures and COVID responses as well? Or is it a, is it a combination of the two? It's a combination of the two. Also, the University of California system has several okay. campuses. So we're talking like everything from marine biology to, uh, you know, hmm. biology yeah. to, you know, uh, seismology. Right. So there's all these different kinds of field programs. And the university has its own risk management department that's kind of, you know, working with all of us to help make things to figure out whether we can do it. And in the case of field school, it's kind mm-hmm. of one of those summer courses that, you know, it counts a lot for us teaching students and all that stuff, but it doesn't actually, it, it, it's not, you know, a requirement most of the time of graduation. So it's not really like a curriculum type thing. But in some of these other ones, like, you know, wildlife management or forestry or something like that, a mm-hmm. lot of times these graduate programs, like you have to actually go out, you have to go out and do stuff. And there's classes that are held outdoors at some kind of uh, research facility. And it's like, you know, your career is really constrained by not going out and doing those field programs. My other question related to that was, uh, as far as policies and procedures go, 
I'm interested in the conversations that may or may not be taking place amongst you and your your other um, academic colleagues or, or even around the country uh, in academic circles around field schools, because it seems like, you know, as everybody knows, we've been traveling around the country since June and we've noticed different procedures. And obviously, as we've gone through 2020 and on to 2021, things have changed in places, but we've noticed how different regions and different areas handle things. And, you know, down here in Florida, everything's basically open. They do have procedures. They do say social distance, you know, put your mask on. We, we saw signs going past outdoor seating restaurants that say stay six feet apart, but their tables are three feet apart. So I'm not sure how that works. But my point is, People seem to be trying to come up with measures to have, quote, business as usual, life as normal, but have these COVID procedures in place. So what are the conversations centered around having a COVID safe or virus safe in, in whatever way you want to look at it? Field school. What are what are some sure. of those tactics that are being developed? Yeah. Sure. I mean, there are organizations. Um, I know that the folks at Montpelier, they had a socially distanced field school and uh, it, I think I can't remember where they get their credits through. I'm sorry, I don't remember what university. It's an accredited field school, though, and, and students do get college credit. And they have all the protocols set set up, and they actually went through them all in the summer of 2020. And they're one of the ones that I see advertising that they're going to have field school in 2021. And I and I actually believe it for several different reasons. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's in the United States, right? So if you're a student in the United States and you're taking uh, classes through another student in the United States or through another institution in the United States, you're familiar with that system. For example, if you get sick, our system is set up for your insurance, right? Like you're, you, you know, a lot of times you speak mm-hmm. the same language. And so it's not as hard for you to get to a hospital. In the case of uh, Montpelier, they they have all these protocols. Students are really, you know, they're staying by themselves in their own um, lodging and stuff like that. They're socially distanced there at the site. I mean, they don't get, you don't get the same communal hanging out for lunches and dinners and stuff necessarily because they have distance rules, but they're keeping things apart there. And then students are uh, living their lives uh, at their lodging and, you know, they, they're not supposed to go out and party or get too crazy or anything like that. So in that case, mm-hmm. I think they're going to move forward. But I keep seeing advertisements for other field schools in other countries. And I'm shaking my head like, you know, some of these countries actually, in fact, have a, a prohibition on people from the United States coming in. And these kind of developments are happening in real time. They're not mm-hmm. nobody started way back in March and said no one from the United States can come into the to our country uh, <laughs> because of the pandemic. Right. They all were kind of like, OK, well, you can come if you test negative. No, wait a minute. We're having too many cases. OK, so now it's changed so that you have to quarantine for 14 days. No, wait a minute. Now you have to test and then you have to test when you get here and then you have to quarantine for 14 days. Oh, wait a minute. No, now people from these countries, South Africa and other locations, they can't come. And it's like a constantly moving Mm -hmm. target. So if you're a student that you're trying to sign up for a field school in January or February, well, it's almost March. So if you're signing up now, you've got 90 days to for the you know the rest of the semester and then your field school might start are they going to give you all your money back are there processing fees what happens if you get over to um i don't know i'm just putting it out there what happens if you get to france and then you get sick what's your insurance going to do if you're a student like how is that all going to work 14 day quarantine what does that mean does that mean that you're getting food yourself somehow uh, or is the um is your field school university going to give you the food 
I mean, there's just too many questions. Mm. And I know that when things went down last time, some of these organizations were pretty slow to give people back their money because they were kind of like, well, maybe we can hold on to it. Well, maybe we'll just let them do it next year. Well, maybe, well, maybe. And then, you know, students had dropped thousands of dollars on the field school and they weren't giving them their money back. And then eventually the one student that I know took the longest, she got her money back around October. But there's other students I know that mm. I never found out if they got their money back. And then also those the registration fees. So, you know, how are they going to keep you safe when you go to another country? Are they even going to let you in that country? Do you have to show up two weeks early? And then when you come back, are you going to have to quarantine in Miami or Cleveland or mm. something like that? Because your plane got in in that city and you got to sit there for two. You know, it's just too complicated for those kind of field schools. If you can do something in your local area that you can drive to it every single day and stay at your house, like that is by far the best. But then you run into the uh, organizational uh, difficulties of maintaining the health and safety in the field and building those protocols and those health and safety plans for your project through your university, right? Because we're kind of running out of time. Like you were supposed to have put it in probably months ago. If it's like any other university, it'll take months and months for them to vet that plan. And then, you know, by that time, whatever county California has fully opened up and it doesn't even really matter at all anyway, but they didn't let you do the field school anyway. So you couldn't make any of your reservations because we have to plan so far out in St. Croix. Like we start planning that thing in January for people to come in July. That's the only real way that we can get enough lodging that we can make sure that people have plane tickets that we can review students and all this different stuff. So, you know, December, January this year, things were just so crazy. We just decided not to do it. And then last year we had already mm. chosen students and you know said that they were, that they had been uh, added to the fellowship and all that stuff. And then we had to just cancel it. And those students did not get their summer stipend. We didn't go to the field and like, it was just kind of, it, it just kind of like faded away. So we're hoping have- that 2022 we can do it, but we don't know. I have, I have a solution, potential solution. (laughs) I think it's time to usher in internships, even, you know, more so than we did in the, in the past, the typical manner of getting experience has been, you know, you're in your undergrad and you take a field school or you take a field school right after undergrad so that you can get experience. And for somebody who hires in the CRM world, I actually much prefer hiring people that have actually gained experience through an internship and have experience excavating, doing field work from a CRM perspective. It's not all that helpful for me, for somebody to have a field school on their resume. It's great. It's better than nothing. But to have a field school on their resume from Greece or anywhere in Europe, it's not as comparable to the skill set that I need to have to have a, a newly hired employee um, hit the ground running with some minimal training on how we do things specifically as a company. And so I think this is a really good Mm -hmm. opportunity for universities to team up with CRM companies and actually have people, you know, these students get really, you know, practical experience. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to Bill uh, about that because I can see some notes here. I have a Uh professor that's willing to work with me right away. Awesome. And I will say, you know, we've worked and, and and then I'll push it over to Bill, but we have been working, my company, we never stopped. We never, mm-hmm. we never missed a beat. We put in our COVID protocols, which were very extensive. Like I worked on it immediately. We created a, a really well-oiled machine right away because we just couldn't afford to not. We have some really big companies that expected us to 
move forward and not stop. But at the same time, we wanted to keep our employees safe. That's really important to us. And that's not just, we don't just say that in word. We actually do that in deed. And so we haven't had anyone that has caught COVID through field work at all. The closest thing we've really gotten is if they're monitoring a construction company and somebody on the construction crew caught it at home, they happen to be on the site at the same time. And so to be cautious, we've quarantined them or we've you know had them test before they go back out there. But we haven't had anyone catch it. And we've been working nonstop in some really large projects, data recovery, yeah. every sort. So Bill, go ahead. No, that, that's amazing. And I think that that's killer that you had those protocols in place and that you were able to do work. I mean, going forward, which maybe we should talk in the next segment about this, these health and safety protocols that used to be kind of cowboy, wild west, just do whatever you want, you know, the kind of life that we were living when we first started doing cultural resources, that might be fully dead. I think COVID might have just killed that kind of just freewheeling field work thing for good, which mm-hmm. I think that's good because there's a lot of archaeologists walking around with broken backs and crippled arms and stuff like that from doing too much work when they should have listened to their body. So, you know, we could go on to that. But I, for one, for the longest time have been trying to connect with cultural resources companies, try to uh, do as much. Uh, one of the things that I realized right away is that field school is great, but that's like six months for 12 young people to go and do archaeology. That is totally cool, but you're going to have to learn a lot more stuff to work for a cultural resources yeah. company. So one of the things that I've been a long time asking cultural resource companies is what could I teach in the class that would be transferable skills to the field? And so kind of learning how to do short technical writing. A lot of my classes, they, there's always some kind of short writing emphasis that's really heavy on the grammar and the technical writing and using logic. And then Heritage law is always wrapped in every single class. And, you know, students who have taken more than one class of mine, they'll, they'll definitely see where I'm headed with all of that stuff. But the, the missing piece is actually having students work remotely or, you know, in a lot of ways, just basically being vetted by local CRM companies. Because we can, there's a lot of stuff that students can do in the time that's not field work, that's not a field school, that will help them get familiarity with CRM. And the company will be able to get familiarity with the skills and abilities of that student. Okay. Well, that is a great place to take a break and we will be right back and and keep talking about this and maybe get the uh, Canadian perspective on the other side back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code CRMARC. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. 
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to episode 210 of the Serum Archaeology Podcast. And we're talking about COVID procedures and archaeology in 2021 from field schools to CRM archaeology. And we had kind of a, a nexus of field school and CRM in the end of the last segment, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about later. But for now, let's take a look at the northern side of this continent that we're all mostly in here, if you're listening in the United States. Stephen, you said you've been super busy for the last couple of months, which is pretty great. What's going on up there in Canada and how is fieldwork being impacted by 2021 and future plans? As far as fieldwork goes, I can't say because we really haven't started the field season yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so eh. <laughs> it, it, it could go either way. Yeah. Where we are at right now, and, and I'm mostly speaking for Alberta because it's very provincially divided Yeah. as far as the approaches towards COVID. Like you were talking about, like every state kind of does its own thing. Right now, while we're recording, uh, Alberta has like a four-step plan of opening up, and it's it's kind of based on numbers, like how many people are in ICU, how many people, um, how many new cases per day there are, um, stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like you know, so, so they can they they came out with a plan of some sort that has mm-hmm. like actual numerics uh, touched to. I, I I can't really say whether or not it's a good plan. I, I think that for some people, it's very disappointing because they're not really on the list. And for other people, mm. it, it sounds like a good plan because, hey, there's numbers. So right now, we're at a point where basically working from home is mandatory unless you can't possibly do your job from home, which is really vague, really, when you think <laughs> about it. This is different from last year, last year in the spring, when uh, the initial slowdown, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, was more oriented towards um, like we were considered essential services. So we never mm-hmm. actually had to work from home. Hmm. So now we're working from home. I'm, I'm working from home, except when I have to go to the office for something. Uh, either I need to use the GIS uh, computer because um, it's got like specialty software on it that um, my, my work computer doesn't have, or I need to go to the lab because that's where all the artifacts are and I can't, can't bring it in for whatever reason. So there's a little bit of like running over to the lab, um, doing something, mm-hmm. but then you know, when that's done, I'm back to working from home, which I will <laughs> add, Ruckus is having the best year of his life. <laughs> um, like he, My animals, he, same thing. <laughs> oh yeah. Like he, 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 he's got a little box next to me. He sleeps in, he wakes up, he sees me sitting there and he just starts purring. Like it's, it's nice. like his favorite humans right there. Oh, he is, nice. I had to go to the office on Friday and spent the day at the office, which is first time who since early December. And yeah. he was in such a snit when I came home. So it's going to be a treat when I go to the field for a week and come back. Yeah. He's going to be so angry and everything is going to wow. smell like cat piss. <laughs> I, I nice. think that this, um, just what you're saying, Stephen, this is such a good selling point for anthropology, for archaeology. Like Bill was saying that some of these you know, students are saying, you know what, forget it. Like you guys, there's so much of this I can't learn that I really need to have the practical experience. I can't learn right now. I'm just not going to take a chance. And unfortunately, that decision of the students is going to reverberate in in this, you know, discipline for a long time. Um, because when we lose 
you know, I, I sometimes I think it's oversaturated the amount of people that get an archaeology degree. Sorry, Bill, but uh, there's just sometimes not enough work out there for people to really be able to sustain themselves. But I think in this case, the the professional aspects of archaeology, biology, these field heavy disciplines should really be working with the universities and explain to the students that if you're going to get an internship, this is probably the best time to get an internship in archaeology and biology. You're going to have like, let's say physics or or other areas where you're really not going to be able to have that hands-on experience. That's what's so great about interning. Interning is you get that practical experience. It's hands-on before you have that stress of having to make a certain amount of money to, you know, survive. And so, you know, this is a perfect opportunity where we have field work in archaeology and biology that's never stopped. You know, we have all this critical infrastructure and what's feeding this work is, you know, there's a lot of grants, there's a lot of money that's being thrown at different sectors that is fueling a ton of work, at least in the States. It's fueling, and and we're so busy, we can't even keep up and we have to turn stuff down. So, you know, I think this is a perfect opportunity for people to be, you know, for, for the universities to to start growing this relationship between the professional uh, companies. That's going to take universities to to stop. I don't even know what else to say, but to stop having such a small mind about CRM. That's where the work is. The work's not in academia. There's very few spots in tenure positions and more and more now these R1 schools and, you know, the larger schools are hiring adjunct professors. Those tenure tracks are a lot, you know, fewer and far between. And CRM, if you want to make money, I I make more money than anybody who ever taught me, you know, through undergrad and graduate school. You know, that's where the money is, is in CRM. Mm -hmm. If you commit yourself and you work hard at it. Yeah, and I, I I fully agree with everything that you're saying as well. And uh, I you know one piece of me thinks that there's a disconnect because the folks who teach as professors they never most of them never had to do CRM or they just don't really actually know they've never had any other way right because they just went straight through mm-hmm. and then maybe they had a gap or a couple of years but they've been kind of PhD postdoc and working that whole lifestyle getting NSF grants and stuff and they're the you know, 1% that have somehow made it. But that's the other part that I was mentioning about the the finances of the university system. It's going to be interesting to see how that works out because, uh, you know, I was, I went back for my PhD in, uh, I, I don't even know what the hell year it was. I think 2012, which was <laughs> right as every, you know, we'd had the reset, the recession in 2008 and four years in every state was scrambling to try and figure out what they're going to do since all their tax revenue and all that stuff went down. And so I went to a a red state school, Arizona, where taking the cleaver and chopping on universities was like a sport for the the legislature. And so, um, you know, I I watched that whole thing unfold and the uh, anthropology department at at Arizona was saved because they had the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology that takes contracts with the NSF, or not the NSF, the uh, National Park Service, the Department of Defense with uh, Native American tribes. And that was what kept me employed while I was doing my PhD because I was basically doing CRM consulting through the university. And that those contracts were covering the constant chops that they were doing to the anthropology department and you know egyptology and classics and uh some of the other ones they were forced to use other methods to try and make up that revenue so it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening here after this one because so far things have kind of been propped up by 
uh, us not really knowing, but also just kind of um, stimulus packages, right? But we don't mm-hmm. really know what's going to happen. We could end up coming into a world where all everyone's property taxes are astronomically high. Everybody goes out this summer and buys a vacation and they buy two Dodge Rams and all this stuff on credit. And well, it seems like everything's working, right? We The states never suffer a bit for money. And then the universities are able to just get rid of all the furloughs and we all just go back to work. But we could also enter a world where they start chopping on universities at a time when students aren't going to universities because they have to work all day and take care of their families and stuff. And universities like in the back burner. And then the university is going to be in a lot of trouble. And if they're not in the position, like you're saying, trying to have collaborations and trying to teach actual you know, real world skills, and collaborate with uh, CRM companies and the National Park Service, I don't know where they're going to get the revenue. Like, I don't know what's going to end up happening. You know, to kind of take this back to the COVID thing, um, I I think the internship idea is is really smart. Although you do fall into the trap of like businesses, you know, different businesses do things differently. So internalizing the process from one business is not necessarily going to help you out when you transfer to like an actual job with a different business. But for right now, because of COVID, yeah, we're, we're busy. We're out in the field. But like having, having an extra body is not possible. Like, you know, we're trying to social distance. We're having a minimum number of people per truck. We're, you know, like we're, we're only in the office in the lab when, you know, we absolutely have to be. There, there's no place for mm. someone who like unpaid or paid, but like someone who's there for training, right? Like because that's an extra space. And and how do you maintain like the physical distances of mentorship? For me, this, you know, primarily, I, I mean, I think this is, this is a win-win. It's, it's great for a CRM, for somebody who, you know, runs a, a sector of, of a large and bar- larger, medium-sized environmental company. To me, it would allow me to spread out my work and, to take on some of these other projects. So it's not about cramming as many people into one project, but being able to take on more projects. And then, yeah, it's going to take some organization of making sure that we have experienced people with the interns. But then this allows me to take on more, maybe smaller projects, different types of projects, and to bring the intern in. I don't take interns free for free. I pay all interns, period. Our company does, we, we make a stance on that. So, you know, even by paying them, we're paying them less than what we would if we were trying to just, you know, keep the work going. Sometimes we don't have, we just don't have enough people. And so we end up having to put somebody at a much higher billing rate on a project. It doesn't work for the budget. So by having an intern or hiring more intern, you can take on more work and you can just make sure that you divvy out your experienced staff in amongst the interns. And so I agree with you. Yes, you have to be careful. I think a majority of this is, you know, going to be, you know, focused on, on field work. The lab, obviously, we still do work in the lab. Um, we are just really careful uh, in, in making sure that we have the spacing and everybody's wearing masks. And, you know, we have the protocol for in, in the lab, just like we do in the field. But we as, have also done field, we've moved into doing field work outside. So we're doing it on site. We're doing it immediately, which I actually, I think that, you know, this was one aspect we were talking about when we brought uh, when uh, bill brought up this subject is that 
you know, I think there's some amazing things that have happened. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. I think there's some things that we're now doing in CRM, or at least for me personally, that I'm not going back. And one of them is the, the concept of doing the field, some of the lab work in the field. As soon as it comes out, as soon as you recover it, you're doing as much of the work as you can. How many times do we do a ton of field work and then we don't even get to the lab work until months later and then what the heck, this person didn't label anything right. We don't know. So there's you can't catch anything because you can't remember. And I, I just think that there's way of ways of getting around, you know, making sure that we're safe and People have to think outside the box and we have to work with each other. And, you know, the universities have got to get out and, and I'm not going to get on a you know soapbox, but their responsibility is to teach students, teach students, make these students marketable so they can find a job. That's why they're going to university is so they can find a job. And if they're not preparing them to go into the CRM world, which is 70, 80 percent of the job market, they are failing miserably. And so they need to start getting away from this elitist attitude and really start training people. It's, I, I can't, it's, it's literally, I feel like, I feel like I'd rather people come to me straight out of high school. Honestly, sometimes <laughs> the way that they have like no training, I'd rather just take you because at least, you know, you don't know you have people coming in and they think they know. So now I have to kind of yeah. tear them. You know, it's just, ridiculous and now I'm, i'll step off my soapbox Sorry. no no i mean it's a it's a common it's a common uh it's a common statement and you know it goes back to like i said the, the entire thing is not really designed for people to learn cultural resources it's designed for you to do the kind of things that your professor who got tenure 25 years ago learned how to do i mean the stuff that was going on in 95 is not the same that's going on right now so it's difficult for a lot of people to shift over. And then also there's a act, you know, an aspect of motivation, right? So if you're still, if you're still getting paid and your stomach is full and you got a roof over your head doing the same old thing for 20 something years, what's the motivation for you to change your ways to do really anything else? Because so far you've been cranking out students and some of them have been getting jobs and it's kind of like, well, you know, not everybody's going to get a job. And on the other hand, with the adjunctification, Someone who's teaching five to six different classes every 90 days at two different university campuses doesn't really have the time to kind of expand out and teach those kind of real world skills because they're getting abused for their labor and, you know, doing all this stuff so that a university can pay less money for a tenure professor. Mm -hmm. All those things mixed together, overwork, lack of experience, and then lack of motivation is exactly why I think... Bob Hester wrote in like 1972 an article. I can't even remember. It was from, I think it was in the Great Basin, Great Basin Journal about, uh, you know, anthropology needing to teach these workplace skills. And here we are 50 years later yeah. having the same conversation on a different kind of platform. All right. Hey, guys, I think let's take a break and we'll just extend a few minutes in uh, segment three because we're going in a lot of good directions right now. And I want to make sure we have time to talk about all this. So let's take a break and we'll be back to wrap up this discussion in just a moment. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to episode 210 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And Bill, I want to ask a, a really... Fun, well, not even not just Bill, but Heather, um, because you guys have done this before. I want to ask a really fundamental question because I have a small CRM firm. I, I don't do that many projects because it's not my primary thing right now. But I do have a field survey project coming up in June or so. It's probably going to be four to six weeks. It's pretty certain. And the time frame is going to be pretty certain as well. The only thing that's not making that certain uh, potentially is the weather. But because there may still be snow where we're going to do this field work <laughs> like late May, early June. So we got to kind of play that by ear. But that being said, if my small firm wanted to take on, we, we could probably only do like one intern, right? We There's going to be three different companies working up there, but my company only has one survey crew. Right now there's two people. It's basically a similar project that we, as we did back in September, but there's going to be two people. Um, there's smaller areas for survey, but we could have a third. And, I'm just wondering what would a CRM firm have to do if they wanted to partner with University of California at Berkeley and say, hey, we can take on an intern. Here's what we're doing. What kind of things would they have to, I guess, protocols and curricula would they mm-hmm. have to have in order to actually do that and make it worth it for the student? Like, does a pedestrian survey, even with the digital archaeology component, mm-hmm. even count? Is that enough work for them? I mean, you pay them whatever, but what's the curriculum? What are the, what are the details to getting that done? Uh, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question because that's what I'm kind of trying to sort through myself as I ha- try to help yeah. folks, you know, get experience. The thing in the past that has always been that has always kind of stopped it is the fact that for nine months of the year, the student is in school and most professors aren't going to let them just leave and go for 40 hours, like, you know, miss an entire week. Right. So they'd have to (laughs) basically call everything off to, so that they could go to the field to work a a contract for one or two weeks. Right. And that's a lot of times not, not going to be good because they're, you know, paying for school. So they got to get out of school. However, now because of shelter in place, we have this new invention called computers Mm. where people can actually just do their work (laughs) and submit it on the internet. So all those old fuddy duddies that were not using the internet to submit any forms and we're still making folks print out on paper. Students were having to go all over the world to try to find paper to print their papers off so that the person could edit them so deeply in paper. That's all now changed, right? And now we've also gone to a universe where many professors actually know that they can record their voice into this so-called computer and that, <laughs> you know, others what? can then see that, right? So n- not only do we have PowerPoints, but you can hear what the person has said. They can just talk it into the box. Therefore, the student does not actually have to be live in front of you to do all the reindeer That's games. Not true. <laughs> so now I'm thinking like, now I'm thinking with people surviving three semesters, two and a half here of this, I personally am going to keep aspects of this going, like the recording of the things, because some of my students live more than an hour away from campus and have to grind it out and pay $27 a day for 
for parking for six hours to park by the building. You know, that's a lot for someone who's working part time or something like that, who's a parent. So I'm, I'm trying to get rid of that. And I never had attendance policies in my class, but some instructors do actually have attendance. But I'm hoping that this has freed it up so that students could actually go and do that. Now, going back to what they would actually have to learn, you know, that depends on what your system is and, you know, what company you are and all that stuff. But if you have a company and you're thinking about trying to get a professor to teach things in class, I do have a class that I was slated to teach in the fall. It's, I mean, they had a class number and I don't even know what the heck it actually was, but it's called um, analysis of the ar- archaeological record. And what professors had used it in the past was they had just used it as kind of a way for students to look at artifacts and do something for that. But I'm actually going to make it kind of a live action, like field survey class where, you know, you mm. you work through looking at the background material and site forms and you use, you know, a tablet, which I have a couple of them. They use compasses and learn all of the actual land navigation stuff. We talk about regulatory context and we do all the stuff except for actually digging, uh, even including rudimentary looking at certain kinds of artifacts, certain kinds of ceramics, certain kinds of glass so that people will have like the minimum bottom level of experience because I can teach that actually in class. I mean, I can teach those kind of things if we get back to meeting face-to-face again. That's not really a remote class that I can teach. But that's the kind of thing that then we have a certain week if, if uh, companies have some kind of software they want folks to learn. If they, if they survey in a certain way or they want people to really learn how to do these, you know, hand draw a site map or something like that. Those are the kind of activities that can be done in this class. And those are the kind of classes that instructors who are interested in this kind of stuff, they can teach those kind of classes. So, you know, that's what I'm actually kind of thinking off the top of my head as far as like how I could prepare students so that those who you know, have it three or four of them could apply to your project and they could actually work for a week or so as long as their other classes would give them a release for a week or two to go and work with you. I mean, that's, that's the dream so that people would be putting together these weeks or two of um, field work experience so that they have been hired and they know people in CRM. So that when they finish, they don't really even need field school. They just go straight into CRM. Right. Chris, you and I have different projects. So you have projects that are generally like, you know, you have a week long survey and you guys knock it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have that. We also have, you know, small bread and butter projects that are one day, half a day, you know, which would be ideal for an intern that's local um, to get that experience where they do a one day survey and they do it on that day that, you know, they don't have classes. You know, I think for, for a professor, for a department to maybe look at, here's an idea just kind of popped in my head as, as Bill was talking, was that you have, let's say, a suite of skills. And once the student has been able to show that they have experience in a suite of skills, that they could get credit. So the way that might work is, let's say you have a field class, um, field class credit, uh, three, three units, and you have to learn Trimble, you have to learn hand mapping, which I think should never go away. I don't care if we're always using digital, the the spirit behind what it takes to make a map and to properly record a site, mm-hmm. you must learn it in compass and tape in order to really be able to troubleshoot with the electronic component. So yeah. to have a suite of skills that's also in concert with the class that a student, and it's a small class, you know, a class where it only has maybe five or whatever, some a certain amount of 
two-hour classes that they can watch and record it. But then they also have a suite of skills that they have to collect and have it signed off that they worked with this company and they actually got practical experience with the Trimble. And then once they have that and they have documentation, they can get their three units. I mean, I think that's one way. That way you don't have to, a student doesn't have to intern for one week, give up one week of school, get agreement from some fuddy-duddies professors that are not willing to sign in on this that are tenured and they can do whatever they want. And they don't have to say, okay, wait a minute, if I take this one class or if I take this one job as an intern, but it doesn't have Trimble and it doesn't have this, it's not going to give me everything I need. That way they can collect it hodgepodge with different projects. And I don't know, I mean, it's it's an idea, again, just thinking outside the box. You know, it's kind of a follow-up to that. Do students, and this might be for, you know, Heather, with your experience doing this with your company and and Bill, do they need to actually be an intern? Are they looking for credits? Is is that because can we just hire them? No, we just hire somebody. Well, that's what I would aim for. Sorry, Heather. That's but that's what I would aim for. That they just fill out the tax documents. They go through the new hire stuff. Yeah. And they yeah. just they just work because the other thing about California is, you know, there's a lot of folks that are just in the Rolodex that aren't always, mm-hmm. you know, full time individuals because they've got mm-hmm. a lot of different stuff going on or they're students and they can only really work during the summer. So companies are really kind of keeping track of folks over years. And that's why it's important for you to get those one or two day, one week projects yeah. with a lot of different companies because you're building up those experience. But even more importantly, you're building your professional network. It's going to help you a lot when you graduate. The intern, the internship that I think is important just in word is that it, it distinguishes somebody who has a lot of experience and those that are just starting out. So if I, ha- if I hire somebody as and as needed, I'm thinking that if they wanted to get some unit credit and kill two birds with one stone, that's why I was thinking, you know, having that suite of skills that they're collecting over time and then turn it in and get mm-hmm. their three units. But as far as I go, I would hire them as needed. There are projects that require us to have a Secretary of Interior standard archaeologist doing the work. And so by me saying that this person's an intern, I still get that that help and have that extra person that is on a uh, crew, but they're an intern. And so that, you know, excuses the fact that not everybody is yet a Secretary of Interior Standard archaeologist. And so obviously I would never put somebody out there that isn't experienced to do it by themselves. I don't do that anyway. I at least write a couple. But I think that that's probably where the idea of intern. Now, you know, you don't have to call them an intern, but the (laughs) idea is they just don't have as much experience as the others. Yeah. No, I, I'm all about. I'm all on board with you know bringing students on. In fact, this this project we come up in in June here. I would love to partner with a school, and you know I'm usually when I'm dealing with CRM archaeologists, I want to give them as long a project as possible, right? Because coming from the shovel bum world myself, I'm like you know you, you look for the longest ones possible because it's the best security. You know, it's oh my god, a few weeks without looking for a job, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, from a student standpoint, in order to expose them or as many students to a certain type of thing, just so they can get the experience. I mean, we've got, again, this is like a five or six week project. It looks like it's going to be at least four weeks. We haven't got the full scoping done yet, but uh, so four to six weeks. I mean, it'd be great to bring a student out there 
each week, a different student, yeah. right? And and yeah. give an experience. Now, the, there's challenges too, because two things. One, MSHA is required on this project. And I don't care if you're a student or not, you have to have MSHA if you're going to be out there. You might be able to get around that because some places have you don't need MSHA if you're escorted by MSHA regulated people and you're on the mine for less than seven days in a calendar year. So if they're out there for, for less for than a week, readers, probably. For, yeah. For our oh, net readers. Yeah, Sorry, for, our listeners. You might want listeners. to <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yes. So the Mine Safety and Health Administration is what MSHA stands for. And it's a, uh, uh, you got to take basically like a three day course. It's 24 hours worth of instruction. You got to take a three day course. It's typically three, eight hour days in order to, work on a surface or underground mine. If you're going underground, you got to take even more. But the basic MSHA is 24 hours. And then each year, you've got to do actually an annual eight-hour refresher. And again, I don't know if this is MSHA specific or specific to this certain area in Nevada, but I have been told again that if you're on the mine for less than seven calendar days and you're escorted by somebody with MSHA, then you, you don't need to actually get MSHA. So actually, that would work out because... The MSHA class itself is not only, like I said, three days, and there's no getting around that. Even if you take it virtually, the virtual class is also three days because you're doing it not on your own, but with somebody observing you're doing it. And it's like $400. <laughs> so it's right. not... It's not cheap, right? Uh, maybe it's two hundred dollars. Either way, it's not it's not cheap and not worth it to do just for a week long project. Um, right. So if we don't need it, then that would actually be really good. Also, I'm not sure I would want to even bring a student out for four to six weeks because after the first week, they kind of get the idea, they've got some experience, they know what's up, and they can move on and go do something else rather than just exploiting them for field survey for six weeks. So, well. You know, I mean, the other, it's, the other, it's easy. The other thing too. to remember is that they have, you know, their own jobs and families and all that other stuff. So it's not yeah. like they can always just be yeah. taking weeks off here and there. Most students, just they Joe, already yeah. have a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. I like the, sure. you know, For dividing sure. it up. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll have to talk about that because like I said, I'm, I'm more than happy to bring somebody out there and we'll give them the $130 a day per diem and 20 bucks an hour and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, give them a, a decent wage. So you know, even if they're not, you know, think about, I just, I, I think the idea of doing a field school is awesome. I mean, I actually, I wanted to go to Belize. I was supposed to go to Belize, but I had two two small children. I was a single mom and I couldn't do that. And so, you know, yeah. there's a lot of people out there that just don't have the ability these days to just go gallivant off to Greece and take, you know, three weeks. <laughs> I think those days are over. I, and I used to work for, on the company that um, kind of acts like a travel agent for archaeology field schools. IFR? Yeah. IFR, yeah. yes. I, used to IFR. I, didn't, I didn't know you were working so, them. Yeah, Institute for Field Research. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that that, that is those days are are kind of over. Like we needed something a little bit more practical when it comes to field work, something that actually, you know, teaches mm -hmm. people, you know, the skills that they need to have. Because a lot of these field schools, they're not teaching the technology aspect that these students are going to need to have when they get into CRM. All right. Well, we're nearing the end of this episode. Bill, I want to throw it to you and just say, for any CRM firm looking to hire some students for training or intern, whatever you want to call it, um, on a short-term basis coming up this summer or any time, like you said, uh, if they can if they can swing it, just to give them some experience. Now, let me also say this really shouldn't be done to get cheap labor, right? That's not what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You should have 
I, I feel like you should have a certain percentage of people on your staff that are full-time professional archaeologists. They don't need to necessarily have any experience either, right? There's people that are new that just graduated. That's fine. But their job is archaeologist and they're doing that. They're not in school. I think that's incredibly important. And then a, a smaller percentage, you know, maybe 10% or less, can be students because how else are we going to train the next generation? You know, Heather, you yes. spent a long time yep. and, and you're not saying anything. Nobody's hasn't <laughs> thought about a lot of times that people don't seem to be getting the actual field usable skills in college, any college yep. program that they really should be getting. There's some arguments both ways around that, but I think you're right. And maybe CRM companies are the place to, to really get that done because this is what they're doing. They're doing this. So they should be the, if, if CRM companies are going to be complaining about the training, CRM companies should be the one Absolutely. spearheading that and making sure it happens. So sure. what are some really quick things in the last two minutes of this podcast mm -hmm. that a CRM company can do in order to hire some interns or some students for their projects? Who do they need to contact and what, what points do they need to, I guess, take, a, take account before they do this? I think there's a million ways that you can do this, but the easiest thing that I think right now in shelter-in-place universe that we live in is... Go contact your old master's or PhD alma mater and offer to give a one-hour Zoom talk where you talk for 30 minutes about cultural resources with some kind of mm -hmm. bullet points of what someone at the undergrad level, someone at the master's, and someone at the PhD level needs to know if they're coming into cultural resources. Give the talk and then open it up for questions at the end. Now, if you could talk to your old advisor before they announce this whole thing, they should also recommend students fill out their resumes and all their other stuff. And, you know, people who are actually really willing and interested in stuff, be ready, right? So I'm not saying that the students should unload on the, the cultural resources person with them all reaching out and begging for a job. But I'm saying get serious, right? So you don't have to call mm -hmm. and say that you're looking for people and that you have, you know, employment coming up. But just tell students there's going to be someone who really, they do archaeology, <laughs> they went to your school, they, you know, went to this department and they're going to tell you the kind of skills and, and uh, knowledge you're going to need to go into CRM and to show you're serious rather than just clicking on yet another subscribe, whatever Zoom talk, go dust off that one page resume and get it in shape for the future, right? So it's kind of a two action yeah. thing. Yeah, you're going to hear a great talk, but dust your resume off. And I'm not saying email the person the minute they go live on Zoom, but have that thing ready because the stuff that you're going to hear, you'll look and see, well, wait a minute, I don't have any of those skills or man, how can I get those skills? Or holy cow, I've already got all those skills. I'm ready to go do CRM this summer. I don't need field school. So that's the easiest thing of all that you can just reach out to your old alma mater and just start with the professors that you actually already know, the people who taught you, go reach out to them, start right there. All right. Well, that's great advice. On that note, I think we'll leave it there. I've talked about this in the past, and I, I think this is probably a good year to do this because, like Bill said, people are getting more used to doing things virtually and uh, and and having that just kind of be the norm. Because in the past, I've I've approached a few students and tried to get them on this podcast, and uh, it ends up proving to be a little bit difficult, to be honest. But I want to start bringing on like a student and maybe somebody who's in their first year, like over the summer, maybe we get somebody who just graduated too, to come onto this podcast as a guest host for two, three, four episodes and just 
not really. So we're going to grill them. And obviously we're going to grill you for the first episode. <laughs> but after that, <laughs> just provide your perspective as somebody who's either not ever been in this field before and just have a college education or has recently graduated and you're just getting some experience. You know, maybe we'll get somebody who's this is their second year. What's your perspective there? If you're listening to this show and you fit that bill in any way, shape or form, then contact me, Chris, at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You can find it all over ArcPodNet. You can hit us up on the socials and we'll see if we can't get you on the show. We record every other Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific for about an hour. So uh, I think that would be a great perspective to have on here and we'll do that. And if you're a CRM firm hiring any students or interns or giving some training like that, let's get you on too. I want to find out what you guys are doing and, and how successful it's been and, uh, and what you think about that program and how we can make it better. So with that, we'll see everybody next week and uh, stay safe and wash your hands and wear a mask. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash crmarchpodcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Phone.